Welcome to the Orange County Endurance Podcast. My name is Chris Elmore with my co-host Austin Ray and back with us this week, Tony Macias. How you guys doing? Doing great, man. Had a great weekend. Ready to hear about Tony's race and how well he did. Yeah, I was uh, I was glued to the phone. I'll tell you that. So when timing updates don't go well, it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I did hear the tracker issues. Going way too fast. Yeah, tracker issues are very frustrating. Yeah. But before we jump into that, I'll uh, do our normal uh, where you can find us. Uh, you can find OC Endurance on Instagram at oc.endurance.com. And then if you would like to submit questions, we got a bunch of questions this week for Tony in the uh, OC Endurance Discord. But uh, if you'd like to start to send those, actually, I should check our email. I didn't actually check the email. <laughs> so maybe we got some questions that I didn't look, but uh, at podcast at ocendurance.com. Uh, I got to get in the uh, habit of checking that. Uh, you can send us questions uh, for any of us or general topics you'd like to podcast possibly here discussed, but, uh, let's jump into it. What you been up to Austin? Oh, nothing. Another good weekend. Uh, I was down at, in San Diego most of the weekend for rock and roll, um, 5k and the marathon. And that's, that's a big marathon, man. There's, I think there's like nearly 20,000 people out of that race. It's, it's insane. It's in San Diego. I mean, it's a metropolitan city, but it's not that big of a city. You know, the streets are crowded and kind of narrow and everything. Beautiful course. Um, and the climb really kicks your ass at the end of the full marathon. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Saw a bunch of people out there. Yeah. Familiar faces. Ran with a few people. Now you got to talk to what you were doing. I didn't realize Josh was doing <clears> the race, actually. Um, but when I saw the pictures and you and Josh are actually pushing people, you got to talk about what, what you're involved in. And that looked amazing. Yeah, uh, I've been doing this for about a year now. Um, the organization is called Ainsley's Angels, and they're all over the country. Uh, I think their biggest chapter is in North Carolina. But essentially, what they do is they pair riders with disabilities, adults and children uh, who are unable to walk or run or do any physical activity. And they put them in, uh, I guess you'd call it like a sport wheelchair. We call them blades or axioms, things like that. Um, what you would see, you know, Rick and Dick Hoyt, you'd be running with those, you know, um, place them in those, pair them with a runner, do some 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, all sorts of things. And they raise money to, you know, give chairs to those those people that can't seem to seem to afford them and give them opportunities to be in races. It's, it's a whole lot of fun. And um, I've been running with, I think every, almost every race that I've done with them, I run with uh, the same girl every time, Melissa. So um, it's a lot of fun to, to kind of grow a relationship with her and her family and then everybody there who's just fantastic. And talking to Josh a couple times during our rides, he was really intrigued. So we got him out there. I couldn't get him to commit to the full marathon, but I got him to commit to the half marathon, and uh, which was good. I think, I think that was his first long run since probably Ironman California. So solid, solid training going right there. And, uh, you know, just got him kicked off for, uh, for Ironman Arizona, but yeah, it's a really, really good organization and, uh, we'll have to get you guys out there. One of these that times. That would be amazing. Too. So did you do the full? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's a, it's a really fun course. I've run parts of it before, uh, just, you know, pacing people through the marathon but when you have a chair, it's, you feel the uphills and you feel the downhills. I mean, if you're going on a downhill, you can't just kind of let your legs go or else that 
chair is going to take off and you're responsible for somebody's life. So that puts things in perspective. And then when you're going up a hill, I mean, all that weight is right back on you and it's, it's a challenge. So do those chairs have any um, sort of braking on them? So when you are going downhill, you can break them a little bit. Yes, some do. Um, but some don't, it's really just kind of a leash system or something like that. So you have to be pretty aware, you know what I mean? Um, and, and they'll take off. It's just, it's, you know, it's like a bike or something, you know, those wheels are free spinning and they have a lot of weight, so they'll carry momentum. Um, going around turns and things can be a bit tricky, but you get used to it. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, you get so much, uh, energy from people watching, you know, people are just cheering on marathoners and half marathoners and stuff. And then you come through with a chair and they see whoever your rider is in there and they get so excited. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that, that gives me a boost. Oh yeah. Just the joy. Or it doesn't give me a boost. Yeah. And, and it just carries you through the race and it's the joy that you see on other people's faces and your rider's face is it's next level. It's, it's, it's one of the, my most favorite things I've ever done for sure. That's pretty well, awesome. even that, that picture yeah. that got posted with Josh and his writer and just the, the pure joy on, on her <laughs> face. That was, that was amazing. I was like, oh, that's, that's what it's all a- about right there. Angels. Yeah. Angels hilarious, man. He, he, he was just kind of sitting sideways in his chair the whole time and just up perked up watching everything going on, watching the planes fly over and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun when you see the joy for everybody else and, and you're just there to facilitate because it does feel selfish to have any level of fitness and, and use it just for myself. Um, and that was kind of, you know, where Josh was, was at too. And, and I'm, I'm so happy he got to experience that. And I think he's going to keep coming back. So that's, that's awesome. Well, for someone who's interested, how does that work? Do you, are you registered for mm-hmm. the race already or you work through them and they register you to run? How's that, how's that work? So, yeah, so both, uh, the first thing, you know, f- specifically for this organization, um, you go to ainsleysangels.com register as you may be a writer, uh, but if you're a runner, you would register as a runner. So just go on register, fill out some basic information, they'll contact you and they have a list of races that they do. Um, in the SoCal chapter, we have thrive half marathon down in San Diego is coming up. There is the Crown City one down. They do quite a few down in San Diego. They do Surf City, so they'll be at the Surf City 10-miler. Um, and and you can kind of pick whatever races they have. And then you can register yourself or they'll register for you. But you you pay for your race entry. They pair you with a rider and and off you go. Um, and, and it's runners of all abilities. A lot of people get really intimidated when they see the chair. They think, well, I don't – you know, half marathon or a marathon or a 5k is hard enough. I don't know how I'm going to do it pushing a chair, but there's people of all abilities that run and it has nothing to do with how fast you go. It's just doing the race. And it's also proved to yourself that you can do something a little bit harder than you think. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. Reach out. I'm reach registered out to them. for surf city 10. We can get you a rider in a chair. I man. think we need to do that. That would be pretty fun. Jo- Josh is Josh is doing it. I, I know Tony was inspired by the Hoyts, so I'm thinking that we can probably get him pushing one pretty soon here. Um, and that's actually we ran with Team Hoyt in San Diego this weekend too. So it was kind of a group thing. So Team Hoyt and Ainsley's Angels. Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, so many chairs. I think there was 22 teams total doing it. It was it was fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. So what's next for you? That's a good question. Um, I guess surf city 10. Well, 
I'm going to do the HB Pier swim this weekend. That's nothing major. I think it's 800 meters or something like that, but it's always a fun way to kind of kick off summer. Um, and after that would be Surf City 10. I'll be doing the Long Beach Marathon. I won't be pushing for that one, but I will be running for that one as kind of a final prep into Ironman Arizona and then Ironman Arizona. So that's really kind of the major ones on the, on the calendar. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, as far as I am, before we get to Tony, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just still cracking away at training. I did uh, track last week, which is pretty cool. I actually ran um, some, uh, I did a workout of uh, four 200s, four 400s, you know, so jogging, uh, oh, jog a 200, run a, I mean, nothing, 730s, nothing crazy, right? Nothing, uh, just, just feeling the legs a sure. little bit. And, uh, it's feeling good. So PT is continuing doing a lot more strength training, um, kind of adductors and, uh, hip flexors, things like that. Trying to strength train. I do feel like I've lost something like my legs aren't quite popping like they normally would. And maybe it's just being gone for so long. Maybe it's those muscles kind of being, uh, kind of in a protective mode almost, but, uh, yeah. And then I did my first brick this weekend, which was cool. Yeah, I, saw know, that. I think I yeah. rode too hard. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, three hour ride and then hopped off and, and ran for a half hour. And that was a, that was a long half hour run. I looked down, I'm like, holy <laughs> crap, I'm seven minutes in. <laughs> Did you kind of in your head, knowing what you would normally run for 30 minutes, kind of put sort of a parameter on yourself or, or a goal of where you should be. And then you were realizing, okay, I'm I'm not quite there yet. And was that, was that frustrating? No, I mean, I knew pretty, my goal was to run, uh, sub tens really. It's like, you know, I just get out, feel the legs, right. I haven't haven't been on a ride three hours and gotten out and run in since La Quinta, right. Last December. So, um, yeah, it was holding nines, nine thirties. Wasn't very hard for the first, say, fifteen minutes or so. Uh, towards the end, I, I could feel it. It just, you know, it just felt like it was everything to make my right leg kind of turn over. So there's work mm-hmm. to do there, but mm-hmm. it was good. It felt great to to get to put the bike away and go out for a run. So and, and no pain after. No, nothing from the injury yeah. whatsoever. Right, I'm going through the typical like runner pains of hey, I haven't run in a year, and now I'm you know couched to 5K type thing where uh, all the little <laughs> pains are occurring. Right, the low back just from impact and things like that. But no, you yeah. know, I'm not really going out and doing any major mileage, so it hasn't been you know nothing nothing major yet. So. Well, that sounds like a typical triathlete though, right? Just over bike and then survive on the run. <laughs> you know, 100% just yeah. like every you got race. It down. Yeah. <laughs> if I can just roll that into Oregon, we'll be good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is that the next one for you? Is yeah, Oregon? that'll be the first. So I think we're like okay. six weeks away. Um, yeah. That's before any Cobathlon or anything like that. Yep. Yep. So okay. no real expectations other than just, you know, if I get out there and I run nines, just run all 13 miles and don't hurt myself. Right. Cause that's my goal is just to kind of get through that and really focus on 70.3 Arizona is where all my focus is at, at the, at the moment. Well, I would, I would imagine once you actually get on the starting line, the competitive edge is going to take over and it's going to be a problem. Well, even from like two weeks ago, where it's like, oh, I'll be happy if I can just walk the run. Right. You know, or maybe I'll do sure. the, uh, I'll, I'll do the bike. And if I don't feel like doing the run and now already I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I can hold nines, nine thirties. So each week it gets a little, little more, uh, aggressive. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but yeah. And then uh, obviously we got Finland coming up. So that'll be, uh, Austin yeah. or uh, not Austin, uh, Tony and I 
got to talk transportation of bikes. So I'm actually considering renting a, a minivan while I'm there. So oh. because looking at after talking to the company about getting a bike from the airport to the race, that's not a big deal. They'll take it for you. But getting it back from the race, I have like three hours, you know, oh. say I finish in five hours. There's a small window. I mean, it's three or four hours, but to get back to the house, tear the bike down, get it in the case, get it back to the place where they're going to take it to the airport. Then I've got to get on the train and meet them there in like an hour and a half or two hours and then get the bike wow. from the airport to a hotel. So I'm kind of like, you know, by the time I start adding things up, like the cost of the hotel near the airport, uh, to and from transportation for the bike and possibly your bike to uh, the race itself, right? You would probably have to take the, the service back possibly, but right. maybe I take it from the airport. You know, we all ride in the car together. I mean, I'm sure you guys don't mind riding with a guy who's never driven on the other side of the road before. I mean, <laughs> and, uh, Legally. Yes, yes. And we'll save, uh, save, I don't know, 60 bucks taking our bikes that direction. So by the time I add all that up, it's close to the cost of renting uh, a minivan for four days or whatever. So, yeah, let's Jeez. look into that. And then obviously, you know, we'll take care of, you know, cost and stuff like that so and yeah well, i mean enough, I'm, it, it works for me the biggest thing will for you will be getting your bike back to the airport the next day right and you'll you can use that service and your flight's not till 4 p.m so it's not quite like 7 a.m yeah I'm, you guys are both leaving the day after yeah i'm on the very first flight out because that's really all delta okay. offers in their 6 a.m 7 a.m flights but the train doesn't start running till 6 a.m so i've got to leave the night of the race <sighs> to get to a hotel but you can't take your bike on the train. You have to use a transport service and, oh. and they won't keep it overnight at the airport for me. So I've got to be back at the train or at the airport that night to pick my bike up to then get it to a hotel in a little tiny Fiat or whatever the taxis are driving around there. Right. Some little tiny European car trying to get my bike to the hotel. So Jeez. That's a it's definitely a little bit of a logistics, uh, um, puzzle. So <laughs> <laughs> It's all going to be worth it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. All right, Tony. Tony just raced Ironman 70.3 Hawaii uh, two days ago. How many days now? Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Today's Monday. Saturday, two two days. days ago. A little over 48 hours at this point. Yeah. So how are you feeling? Feeling pretty good overall. Um, body's feeling feeling pretty decent. Not not too much soreness. Um, obviously, you know, feet still healing up uh, a bit. And, um, you know, I guess we'll kind of go over that a little later, but, um, overall, yeah, feeling, feeling pretty good. I'm happy with the result and, um, you know, I can't complain too much and it's racing in paradise. Darn, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, how many times have you done this race? This is the first. So this is your first time doing Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously after, after racing here last October and, um, thinking that I wasn't going to do Finland and just trying to fill the, fill the slots and figure out what races I was going to do. And, you know, having a friend who, who lives here that I could stay with it, it made it very accommodating and, and affordable. And, uh, there was plenty of room left in the race. And so I signed up and, and just figured why not, you know, I, I, I love, the, I love the Island and why not come back and, and just do a little rust buster here this is the basically the kickoff to my season. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So though, for those who don't know, how different is the world championship course in Kona to 
obviously it's twice as long, but how different is it from if you wanted to go experience Kona per se or something like it? You know, how different is the, is the race course? Yeah, for sure. The only thing they share is basically the back half of the bike course. So um, the Sunny Point 3 uh, starts just past like Wakiloa. And so you, you basically would start from there and you get the, you get basically about probably 50, 53, 54 miles of the, the full course. Uh, you get the full climb to Hovey and then the turnaround and you get to experience that descent and the winds, uh, and then a little bit of the rollers back on the queen K. So that's, that's just about all they share. Um, the, the swim, you start completely further North. You're probably about 30 miles North of, of Kona of, of the Bay where it, where the, the full starts and of course you're so far north there's no way you're going to get near it for the run so the run course is completely unique um but yeah if you want to experience a portion of the bike or at least the you know what everybody talks about that that climb to javi come and do the setting point three and, and you'll get your fill are the elements similar as far as weather humidity things like that no i was expecting it to be hotter um so on race day it actually did end up warming up more than what was i think forecasted and what we were seeing early on and obviously the days leading up to as well we were getting probably beautiful like mid 70 weather uh, still high humidity of course because it's, it's hawaii and and the winds were uh, pretty sustained probably like 15 20 mile an hour winds nothing too crazy uh, and then come race day yeah, I mean, it, it got up to about 84, 85, um, and the winds kicked up a bit. But still, it's nothing like it was in October. October, I think we had 98 on race day, high humidity. Um, I actually got lucky. I think we, we got lucky last year in October with, with very relatively low winds, um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, comparatively speaking, from previous years. But the, the heat was, I mean, again, I'll, I'll take it. It was a good 15, 15 degrees cooler this time of year, uh, or at least, you know, the day of the race versus October last year. Yeah, that's nice. Now prepare us for going into the race. You got there a little early and you did some, uh, extracurricular activities and were you swimming <laughs> in the coral? Were you aqua jogging? I mean, what, what was going on? How did you cut yeah. your foot? Well, let's, I guess let's back up a little bit. Right. So I, I, I flew in on Wednesday. I ended up obviously getting a, uh, a little bit of a, a detour and a delayed flight had a little bit of an issue with my plane and got detoured out to Vegas for a three hour layover to then, um, fly in. And I think I get it. I got in about four hours later than I was supposed to. Um, and then was just in a hurry to kind of get, get situated, get unpacked. I was still, still trying to get, get some food in me. Um, but I always try and run after I, I land just to kind of shake the legs out, especially, that type of a flight where I think it was, you know, just over a six hour flight from, from Vegas here. And for me, I want to go to the energy lab. It's, there, there's just something about it, right? It's, I'm going to date myself now here, but, um, it's kind of like, like kickboxer when, uh, Zion takes Van Damme to the ancient, ancient stone oh city, God. right? Nice. Where he's like, when you train here, listen, Right. So it's, it's one of those things for me. So, so I definitely wanted to, wanted to go get a shake out. So I, I went down to the energy lab and, uh, and ran right as the sun was setting. It was just beautiful and got about four miles in. And, and that was my, that was my Wednesday shakeout. Fast forward now to Thursday. Um, I was with a, 
a buddy of mine who was also racing Nori from, uh, he's one of the, the, uh, officers for, uh, Phil Amtry and he was out here. Um, and so we had coordinated to swim, basically swim, swim the, the, the swim start and then go for a, a, a ride together. Um, and so, you know, we headed out there and f- for those that are unfamiliar with, with that section of water, it's, it's very shallow and, and there's, there's coral all over the, they they warn you about it uh, ahead of time, but it's not it's not buoyed off yet at that point, right? It's still you know a few days before the race, and they haven't got everything set up yet. Um, there's one buoy marker where they they're, they definitely say like, "Don't swim left of this buoy, or you're going to be in trouble." Um, and so we kind of headed out because there's a there's like a lava rock that's that splits the entrance and and um, exit sides of the uh, of the swim course, and so we headed out and and probably just swam out maybe like 300, 400 meters, um, try to get some sight lines and, and pick some stuff out. And then we want to swim back in through the swim exit, which we were going to have to come in through on race day. And I started sighting this, this building that they basically told us to sight for as I was coming through. And within about three strokes, I probably ended up in about, God, 16 inches of water and in a hurry. And I, I took a, a really shallow short stroke with my left arm and I cut my finger and I felt that immediately. And so then I was like, okay, now if I was in a wetsuit, it wouldn't be so much of a problem because obviously you're buoyant. You can just basically stop moving and float at the top of the water. I'm immediately concerned about my feet and my legs. And so I'm trying to like kick very shallowly, keep, you know, keep my hips elevated as I'm, you know, trying to scoot back over towards the right to try and find clear sand where I can put my feet down. I'm literally maybe 15 feet from shore, but stuck. And, um, I get to a point where I, I think I find some, some sand and, you know, try and really tuck my, my knees to my chest to bring my feet up. And right as I put my foot down, I, I must've found just one spot of coral and my right foot slipped out, cut the foot. Um, didn't realize how bad at first, but I got out and I just was looking at my hand and I, I walk up into the sand and I'm trying to clean off my hand and was worried more about that at that point. Cause I think I just, I, I felt like I had just bruised my foot. I didn't really like. I didn't think I cut it at that point. And then I, I look down into the sand and there's just a pile of red sand right where my foot's at. And I was like, Oh, that's not, that's not good at all. And, um, so yeah, I started to got to the showers, rinsed it all off, cleaned it off. And obviously, you know, did some assessment of how bad it was and, um, just figured, you know, we would take care of it as best we could. Um, uh, my buddy Nori had a first aid kit in his truck. So we went out there and kind of bandaged up and, um, you know, he, he asked if, if I wanted to call the ride off and just, you know, basically we'll get some first aid. And I was like, no, let's, we're already here. Let's just figure this out. Um, and I'll, and once we're done, then I'll, I'll worry about it later. So, yeah. So I was, you know, bandaged up, went for the ride, didn't really feel it on my ride so much. Um, and was, was okay from there. So that was it for the day. Was that kind of the end of your, you know, shakeout workouts for the week leading up to the race no i always kind of ended it on that i one. always do a a three mile run the, the the morning before race day so okay. uh, so yes yeah, so after um got got back and, and cleaned up and then i went to the store and got some super glue and i bought some uh, tegaderm and tried to clean up best i could sealed it with some super glue uh threw some patches over you know the the bad spots um and was just kind of like all right well let's see what happens tomorrow morning so 
again for Friday morning, I went down to the energy lab and went in for my my three mile uh, little shake up to see how everything felt. Uh, it it definitely hurt. It was painful to walk. Um, and as I got up to pace, it, it got more painful. Um, but basically, it was sliced on like the the pinky toe side, like the outer side of of my right foot mm-hmm. was the worst part of it. Um, and so, if I'm going straight, it's not so bad. But anytime yeah. I have to move laterally or pivot or push or turn, that would make it very, very painful. And that's where it, that's where it would really start to to open up and, and bleed again. So, um, so it, it it bled through a little bit on my Friday run within the first again few miles, and and so I knew race day was going to be a challenge. And I just figured, you know, like figure out when it gets there. And worst case, you have to you have to deal with some discomfort and pain for for tough two hours or so yeah yeah Yeah, those are those types of things right where you know it's gonna suck but you'll you'll get through it right you know you'll you'll find a way you'll grit your teeth and just go right grit your teeth and bear it um yeah exactly but i if if you can can we kind of take it all the way back maybe a couple weeks leading up just basically how your last hard workouts go what those kind of look like what your taper looks like and then kind of start taking us through race day, how you plan things to go. Um, you know, maybe talk about what you had planned for nutrition, how that worked out for you. Did you need more or less? Um, something like that. But if we could kind of start, okay, last hard workouts, what those are looking like taper and then race day morning. Yeah. I think we, we kind of went through, um, some of those last hard workouts on, on the pod, uh, leading up to, which I, you know, again, those, those were good, but, um, the, the last bike harder workouts were, were more or less um, really seeing what I could push on the bike at, for sustained efforts. Um, again, we were looking at like 35 minute intervals, um, like three rounds, mm-hmm. uh, varying intensity and or increasing intensity for as you moved through the, the different intervals. Um, and those really gave me a good gauge of where I was fitness wise on the bike, but also was, was a confidence booster and putting those in the back of my mind of, you know, remember how hard you were able to push after you pushed, you know, for so hard two and a half hours into your workout or, or an hour and a half into your workout, whatever it was. Um, and again, just building that, that self-confidence of, I can hold, I can hold these new power targets that, you know, before I thought were unattainable. Um, and the, the run workouts, the final run workouts really didn't change too much. Um, I do want, you know, again, just long runs leading up to my final two weeks leading up. I, I typically, you know, try and get in, um, just some distance stuff. And then the week prior is usually about an eight miler. Um, nothing too crazy. Just again, something to start like backing off the mileage and my taper. And, and you're not huge on bricks, right? Like you don't do a ton of bricks. Like you're not doing weekly bricks or one big brick workout you know, maybe two weeks before or anything like that? No, I, 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 I do do bricks, but I don't, um, let's see. I, I don't really think of them as like halo type workouts. I, I don't, um, mm-hmm. I don't really build my, um, my training around that. Um, I will do like my Saturday, Saturday long bikes. I will typically jump off and, and do a run off of that just to again, run off, run off those, those wobbly legs and get the blood flowing and, and start to, build that muscle memory of this is how you move when, once you get off of, of a hard bike, mm-hmm. um, during the week, usually like, you know, I have, I have two other bikes that I typically do and, and I'll, I will jump off and, and typically do a run after those. 
just depending on where we were, where we are in the, um, in the, the training program at that point. But it, it's not, a, it's not a staple for me. It's not something that I'm like, you have to do brick workouts in order to, to perform well. It's, that's not something that I truly believe, but sure. I think you need to do some variation of it and you need to, again, be able to understand what it feels like to run on tired legs. Um, which is for me, well, that's why I like to bike on Saturdays and then run on Sundays is because you're, you're doing your long runs or your, 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 your core long steady state runs on for those fatigue legs. Yeah. Yeah. And then taper is, I mean, you're not huge on a big taper either, right? You like, you like to kind of feel, you don't, you don't want to feel like anything's going to waste. You kind of like to maintain essentially nothing too crazy, but you like to keep moving. Yeah. For me, I'm, I mean, I'm of the mindset where you're, you know, you really can't gain anything in those last 10 days, but you can, you can ruin a lot. So 10 days out is when I really start to, to bring down the taper and I start to just keep, um, building in like sharpening type workouts, um, to keep, keep the muscles firing. But you're not, again, you're not going to gain any fitness in those 10 days prior that you're going to use on race day anyway. So just don't ruin what you've built over the past, you know, eight, 12, 16 week plan that you've already gone through. So, um, I think yeah, you treat fulls and halves the same way. It's about that same period. It's yeah, it's about 10 days for each. Cause again, like the way I'm looking at it is physiologically, you're, you're not going to gain anything that you're going to use on race day. Right. So, um, you, I always try and, um, you know, get to the start line, fit, fresh and healthy is, is the three things you try and aim for. Uh, if you're, if you're not healthy, you, you don't have any chance in that race. Um, I think, you know, Lionel's a big proponent of that too, right? You can't, you can't win if you're not in the start line. So that's mm-hmm. right. And, and on that point of staying healthy, how, with all the volume you do, how do you manage to stay healthy not have any issues is it just something of years of building endurance i mean short of stepping on a piece of coral how do you stay healthy (laughs) yeah um i I think uh just staying fairly consistent i have a pretty good base built up over the years um i i don't i don't really take any, any big off seasons um there's things that i enjoy doing in different sports and you know i enjoy trail running and so even when when triathlon slows down you'll still find me on the trails um you know, I, I, I do my migrate over to, you know, road running for a period, uh, you know, usually at the beginning of the season as well, because we have Boston there. Um, and so I need to be prepared for that, but I'm, I'm always trying to stay, stay fit and stay healthy. So I, I think the biggest thing I would, I would preach would be consistency, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. How much yeah. sleep do you get at yeah. night? Hmm. Do you average? I would say I'm a good sleeper. I, I usually get, uh, I'd say at least six to seven hours on, on average. But the thing is, is I'm a, I'm a big napper <laughs> and <laughs> I, I start laughing because Nadia gives me so much shit for, for as much as I nap, but she just wishes she could nap like <laughs> me. Um, I, I usually like to have lunch and then I will, I will take a nap and it, it really just depends on how I feel and just how long that nap is. Some days it's 30 minutes and sometimes I'll nap for three hours. And yes, it's still a nap, even if it's three hours. So it's just, it's just whatever the body wants. If I feel like, you know, I, I need to close my eyes for a while and my body feels like it's an easy recover and it's going to wake me up in, in two hours. That's fine. If it's three hours, that's perfectly okay with me too. So, um, obviously I have, I have the benefit of 
um, some flexibility with work and working from home so I can get, get to anything. And obviously if, if something came through for work, I would, I obviously would wake up, but, um, having that, having that flexibility really helps. And, um, and I think there, there's no other, there's no replacement for sleep. You, you just, that's one of the, the main things for recovery is, is being able to get good sleep. So I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. Yeah. It's something I struggle with. Um, and I'm aware it's funny. I, I used to use the whoop band, right? Because I wanted to know if I was recovering and how well I was sleeping. And then I just kind of got tired of it telling me I had crappy sleep every single night and I wasn't <laughs> sleeping enough. So it's like, well, I know the answer. I don't need to wear this for the rest of my life. And, uh, so I stopped wearing it. Uh, but recently I switched watches and I've been wearing the Garmin all the time. And it's, it's kind of the same thing where it's telling me you slept five and a half hours, you slept six hours and you were restless last night and all of those things. So it kind of just brings back into awareness, um, things that I played around with to try and help improve my sleep, which when I stopped using the whoop, I let slip, you know, having caffeine later in the day, you know, for a very long time, it's like, okay, no caffeine past 10 AM. Right. And, and, you know, just so that I sleep well, um, no napping past 3 PM, right. Things like that. You know, if I'm going to get mm -hmm. a half hour nap and things like that. So, um, yeah, sleep is definitely probably the biggest area that I think I could improve in. And probably, you know, probably a lot of people struggle with that, right. If we're doing this type of training, there's only so many hours in a day. So especially right, if you're that's up for sure. early. And you, you brought up caffeine. So I, I'm not a coffee drinker. Um, I limit my caffeine pr pretty well, I, I think. And so I try and only take it on like big workout days, uh, big weekends. And then of course for race day, I will supplement the hell with, with caffeine, um, to try and get as much benefit of it at, from it as possible. Uh, but in my day to day life, no caffeine, no coffee. Do you, do you feel like a, a real, I, I don't do caffeine either and I don't even take it in races. Do you feel like a real surge since you're not, not necessarily adapted to having it every day? I, I really do feel like it makes a difference. Um, I can feel it during and definitely after, uh, the, the gel that I feel with is that is the Morton calf. If I take a Morton calf, that little, I call it rocket fuel, something about the way that they deliver the caffeine in that product, if I take it, I need to be very mindful and in, in how my pacing is for the, for the next like 10 minutes following a Morton calf, because <laughs> I will just, I will just take off. And it's very, uh, it can be problematic in a marathon, right? When you take one of those and you start taking off and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't right. This isn't right. So I, yeah, I have to be very, very aware of my pacing when I take a calf. That's just, you the, just have the to be like me. You grab like three or four at every single aid station. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the, the other thing too is after a race. So, you know, race day, I ended up taking, uh, probably in total about 700 milligrams of caffeine throughout the day. And then I, I obviously I can't sleep. So I would, I would, that's how I was up watching, you know, Ironman Hamburg afterwards, um, and I think I was literally up to like three 30 the next morning after waking up at two 30 the previous day for race day. So, you know, up basically for 25 hours straight, um, because I, my, my body literally will not come down off that caffeine for, for just ever. It's, it's ridiculous sometimes. Yeah. So I just keep a low micro dose in 
all the time so I don't have that problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, daily. I'm trying to limit myself to two cups and I actually ran out of creamer this week and I said, you know what? Uh, uh, No more creamer in my coffee. Right, because that adds that oh, adds a little bit of uh, uh, sweetness to it. It makes it a little more enjoyable. It makes a third and fourth cup just you know, it, it's like I want it. But uh, if I don't have creamer, I'm just drinking black coffee. It really one two cups. I just I'm not craving it. I don't you know I don't want it. Um, what I crave is I crave the sweetness of the creamer that's in the coffee, right? Or something warm in the morning when I wake up. So yeah. So this week I made the decision. It's like you know what, I'm out of creamer. It's the same thing I did with sodas at some point. Um, uh, I used to drink a ton of Diet Coke years ago. And at some point I ran out and was like, I don't want to go to the store. No more Diet Coke. And I just <laughs> never drank Diet Coke again. You know, I, every once in a while at a restaurant, you know, if I go out, I'll have a, have, have a Diet Coke or something. But yeah, that, that typically it takes me not wanting to uh, go to the store for me to kick a habit. Yeah, I mean, I find, I find it hard just to come down after a race in general. I don't, at least... With Ironman's marathons, not so much. I, I can sleep pretty well after the mar- a marathon or something. But Ironman's, even halves, um, ultras, those are. I don't. I don't sleep well after. Mm-hmm. I generally can get four to five hours. It's pretty restless, and then I'm up. And usually the second night, I finally get a really good night's rest. Um, that's interesting with the caffeine. It'd probably be even worse for me if I decided to work that in somehow. So <laughs> I should be bouncing off the walls or something, but yeah. Um, well, I think that question you were you, asking, was that Chris's question? Uh, when you were kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. give Chris credit. I, is it, do you know how to say his last name? I think it's, is it S-A-K-A-C-S? I think it's Sakaks. I'm not sure. And he's going to, he's going to hear this and get real. But I wanted to give him credit for the question. I don't know if you were going to get to it, but the other portion of that question was a carb loading philosophy. If you have any. So I typically carb load two days prior to race day. So for me, that would be Thursday on this race. I don't, I don't do a carb load the night prior which seems to be very popular in on the the running side of things which i just i think it's too late your body's not going to break that down and process that and, and convert that to fuel in the 8 hours before your your race starts so what are you really doing um i, I will start to you know do a, a slight load up uh, the week of and then thursday i'm i'm a big proponent of, of pizza um 2 days out so I either call it PR pizza if I'm doing a, doing a run or, um, but or no matter where I'm at, I try and find Domino's. So if Domino's wants to sponsor me, I am, uh, interesting. I am all about Domino's pizza two days prior. And I, so it's always Domino's. You don't find a mom and pops, you know, something like that. I, I don't cause it's different. It's different everywhere, everywhere you go. Okay. And I, I try and keep it pretty, pretty consistent. Um, the thing is, so we did Cabo one year and, and the Domino's out there, it's obviously different. It's a slightly different pizza just because it's, <laughs> it's Mexico. Uh, but it, it worked out, right? Like I had a good race out there as well, but I'm, I'm a big thing, big promoter of pizza. Um, if I can't, if I can't find a Domino's, I will resort to a mom and pop, um, pizza spot. So now it, is there protein it, on that pizza or is it just cheese yeah, pizza? Oh Veggies, yeah. No, I, anchovies. No, my go-to is a, uh, ham sausage, bacon, mushrooms and green pepper so my Ooh. my typical five toppings once in a while 
I, I will throw in some jalapenos, but typically I, I don't do I don't do spicy before before, race. before races That's too. Dangerous, yeah, I don't yeah. do I don't do spicy before races. So. <laughs> well, and and so since you're a pizza guy, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this in here, and Stevie's gonna be really happy about that. I asked this question: Does pineapple belong on pizza? Pineapple does not belong on pizza. Oh God! Okay, hot take. There you go. All right, all right. <laughs> Hopefully, we get some. Uh, some people combating that. I, I, when I used to eat pizza, loved pineapple on pizza. That was my absolute favorite, and it absolutely belongs. <laughs> Man, so. see, I love pineapple, but it's not with pizza. There you go. Interesting. Two to one. We win. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Two to one. Two to one. The old guys win, I guess. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't uh, carb load much either. I mean, I don't feel like I do. Right. I feel like I eat a fairly carb heavy just with the lifestyle, right? The amount of carbs we're taking in with training, I don't necessarily feel like I need to increase. And, and I almost feel like that's, uh, I mean, we are old Tony, so it's kind of an old school philosophy. I feel like there's probably been some more science that's proven that you don't need to eat a boatload of pasta the night before you run or your mm-hmm. race. Um, and the last thing I want to feel is super bloated in the morning or, you know, like I'm carrying pasta with me on the run still. Um, so, yeah, I feel like, like you said, if even ramping up, uh, I feel like I really don't change my routine going into the race that much, right? Maybe have some couple big meals or something like that or a special meal. But uh, definitely, I'm not looking for the, the pasta joint. I've actually gone to just like chicken and rice before a race now. I feel like it's fairly safe to find a little chicken and rice bowl somewhere, um, you know, and other than hopefully not getting bad chicken somewhere, it's kind of gone. It become my chicken rice and maybe some avocado. Nice. That's a nice staple right nice. there. But also, like, 100%. if you think about our training, we, you know, we we really try and adapt to fat burn, right? So, like, we're really trying to um, to maximize how well and efficient we are at burning fat as fuel. And so, as long as you are training your body that way and your body is now pulling from your fat stores, how much carbs do you really need stored in your body, right? If you're pulling yeah. from fat and, and then you're obviously reloading on race day um, with whatever nutrition you're taking on course, um, that should be enough to get you through the day, at least for setting point three, I would say. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and this is a question from Michael, your running partner. Do you eat in and out Would that be a... A week leading up type of meal for you? I'm not a fan of In-N-Out. Um, I, oh. And I, I despise their fries. Oh. Yeah. I, I need some, like, give me some McDonald's, you know, frozen fries with some ex- oh, extra salty. No. Like, that's that's what I love right there. Um, you don't want oh these crispy my. fries, okay. right? No crunchy no, what fries. Is this? I want what is this? fresh potatoes. Limp French fries <laughs> soaked in yeah. oil. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> cannot okay. cannot do in and out. Sorry. I, I mean, like, I do enjoy their burgers. It's it's a it's a good burger, okay. but I probably only have it maybe yeah. twice a year, to be quite honest. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, okay, and then what are you eating race morning, if if you eat at all? Uh, I do eat um, something race morning. So that's why I typically get up earlier than than most uh, on race day. I want time to process that. So, like this for this race, it was a six thirty race start. Um, so I'm trying to get fuel in by about two 30 in the morning. So I have about four hours before what I eat and, and the gun going off for, for me, I, I do the, um, 
the staple of English English muffin uh, with peanut butter and banana and a little bit of honey on top. And uh, yes, that, that's been to. that's been working well for me. Yeah, it's I think it's solid. It gives you just a little bit of everything you need, um, and it's it's not too heavy. Uh, it doesn't doesn't sit in your stomach. Well, I mean, if you train for it, right? It doesn't sit in your stomach too too uh, too right. oddly and. Yeah, I'm able to process that pretty well. So that's been my go-to now for at least, God, I'd say the past like two seasons, three seasons now. Do we use that in big workout days as well? I I do not know. Um, I train fasted. So Mm -hmm. again, I think that's that's part of my philosophy of of trying to teach the body to to, to burn fat as fuel is I I literally don't, I don't eat breakfast um, in my normal day-to-day life. And surely before before workouts, I, I, I'll never eat breakfast. So, yeah. Right. Right. And, and then you're walking up to the start line for the swim gel, anything like that, maybe a banana spoonful of honey. Do you kind of, um, have anything that you go to before you actually hit the water? I'll ask, I'll ask it again. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You got it. Okay. And then you, so you're walking up to the start line, you're about to hit the water. Do you hit a gel, banana, some honey, anything like that? I have a, a more non-calf gel right before the start. That's what I, that's what I'll put in. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. And then, yeah, I guess, I guess from there, take us through the swim, how you felt effort level expectations, things like that. Yeah. So this was a smaller field. Um, and so they had us obviously line up by your expected finish time. Um, there was a, 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 tw- a, su- a sub 27 minute group in, in the front, which that's ambitious on a non wetsuit swim with some current and, and, and waves here. So, uh, I was definitely not in that group. Then I was in the group that was the 28 to 35. I figured I'd swim about a 35. That was my goal going in, uh, again, being non wetsuit. And, and, um, I had really pulled away from masters since about December. I, so I'm probably only back at masters swim now for, um, about four weeks now. So I, I knew my swim wasn't going to be up, up to par of what it needed to be to, to be, you know, competitive in, in, at least in that leg. So I seed myself there, maybe towards a little bit of, of the front because they were, they were letting off two athletes at a time every five seconds. Um, and just because it was a smaller field and they were, they were really able to spread everybody out. And so that worked out nicely. Um, got into the water and noticed quite, quickly that what happens with most setting point threes is everybody had self-seeded themselves incorrectly and i was making moves pretty quick um and it was a little frustrating because i couldn't find feet to uh to follow or or to to jump onto that i felt like i could work with um i I was just swimming by too many people and again knowing my swim ability at this point and and where i was fitness level wise that shouldn't have been happening so a little frustrating to in that aspect of it, but, um, I, I had fairly clear water, which was nice. Um, clear water in, in respects to one, I really had nobody in front of me, but clear water and you can see the bottom of, of, of the, uh, of the ocean. And, and basically it's like swimming in a fish tank. Um, it was just beautiful when you're far enough away from it that it can't cut you. And, and, um, it's a, it was like an L shape. So, um, we swam out maybe about, you know, 50 to hundred uh, meters, I believe. And then you make a, a left turn and then, and then you swim out like 300 and, and on the return you're coming into the, the sun rising. 
and um, you you literally can't you can't spy out a buoy, you can't see anything just about above water. So, um, I, you had a sight more than more than would be typical, I think, in in a normal um, situation. But once I would once I could spot a buoy. I would just keep my head down and start using the coral as my sight line, right? As long as I could stay straight and follow that next coral reef, um, you could use it to your benefit. So since you can't see above water, use what you can see below water in order to keep you straight. Smart. And um, so I, I did that the complete way back, which again, I think that was the longest, the longest leg of, of the, of the swim uh, was maybe about 500. And then you make that final right turn, which are then again, you're still kind of into the sun, but not as not as bad. Uh, but again, just you really utilizing that coral underneath to to really try and bring me home. Um, I because of where I seated, I, I started about ten minutes back of of the, the you know the, those first starters. So I started about six forty, um, and then as yeah, I noticed as I, that you were when I was tracking you right, and we're looking at you, mm-hmm. and uh, there was an issue with your maybe not your bike. I forget. I'll have to look at your splits, but. Um, you, I noticed at some point when I started looking, cause right, there was like six guys and you were in that mix, fourth, fifth, sixth, somewhere in there, you were working your way up on the bike, but mm-hmm. you would, uh, you know, people would show up on the leaderboard and then you would show up above them on the leaderboard. Right. And that kind of just happened the whole time. And then, you know, you start digging in and you start to realize, yeah, pretty much those six, seven, eight guys, uh, that you were pacing with that same time frame, they all started pretty much at seven 30, right. Or six 30. And you started at 10 minutes behind all of them. Right. So, yeah. So, so when I jumped out of the water, I took a glance over and I saw the, the clock. Um, and it was, uh, it was a seven, seven fifteen, Right. So I knew like, okay, I basically came in at what I thought I would do on the yeah, day. You swam was, at 35 essentially. It, yeah. Um, and then there's a long run. It's probably a good 400 meters before you get to your bags. And, um, and the way they have it set up here is the the bike bag and your run bag are are in separate locations. They're, it's a clean transition, so there's nothing on the floor um, next to your bike. Uh, you couldn't have anything on the floor. You could basically have your your shoes had to be attached to the bike or in your bike bag. Uh, in the morning of, you could actually put your helmet on the bike if you wanted to, but I decided to leave it in the bike bag because it was such a long run to the bike. I figured I could put that on as I'm running and get all clipped in and situated before I even got to my bike versus having to get to the bike and then still have to put on a helmet, clip it. Right. So, um, so yeah, I basically, after that, that long transition run, got to the, got to the, my bag, sat down, um, looked down and the tegaderm that I had basically put on to try and keep my foot closed had all rolled up, was full of sand and, and grass by this point as well. So I just made the decision to tear it off. I just figured this isn't going to help me anyway. It's going to, if anything is going to cause more of a problem than it's helping with what all the debris that's stuck to it. So I ripped it off, threw my bike shoes on, uh, threw the helmet on and went on my way running towards the bike. Um, and now, do you jump. typically keep your shoes in like, uh, in transition or do you put your shoes on or do you clip in on yeah, the bike? How do you usually do mount that? Yeah. Shoes are always attached to the bike for me. Hmm. So, but not this time. Oh wait, what did I, I'm sorry. I put my socks on. I didn't put shoes on okay. as I was sitting. I put my socks on, um, and then my helmet, and then started running towards my bike. Um, yeah, and then there was it's a very long. Even after you grabbed your bike, it was a very long run to the mount line. Um, 
it was interesting how, how they had it set up. When you rode back in, the dismount line was much closer than the dismount line, which was it was odd, but something to, to mental note um, for when you're coming back in. But so yeah, so heading out was it was a long run, um, but it's when you start out, it's relatively flat, and if anything, maybe a little bit of a descent. So you don't need to be so mindful of what gear you're in to start. Um, and I was able to very quickly then get my shoes in and start to start to make some power and and uh, and get moving on the bike. And you're not a flying mount guy. I'm not a flying mount guy. Um, I will still roll through and then like lean the bike and kind of do a little shimmy jump on as I'm moving. I'm not a complete stop in mount. Okay. Um, but no, I, I for me the, the the benefits of if I flying mount, I may save five seconds. To if I ruin that, I could just you know lose a good. 30 seconds or, or yeah end your day or you, know, you <laughs> see some crazy stuff the road. <laughs> so i'm like yeah it's it's at this point i haven't trained it enough to to, to feel uh, confident enough in it to use it in a race so maybe we'll get there one day but that day is not was not uh, two days ago um yeah and yeah so to start to wake my work my way through the field obviously you know starting 10 minutes back and then not having you know a a, a great swim um comparatively speaking to the athletes that started in front of me, I had a pretty good amount of, of uh, traffic to kind of deal with and, and funnel to do. So there's a, you start with like a, a little out and back section that's kind of part of the resort um, and was making good progress there. And then once we jumped out to the Queen K, I just put my head down and had par- power targets that I wanted to hit for those um, for the beginning portion of the run before I got to uh, the heavy climb. And... After about what uh what percentage are, are you kind of shooting off watts heart rate what are you, what are you doing there for your goals um it's it's a percentage and so I'm I'm running off of I have a, a target range that I'm trying to to hit typically um and I don't target I mean, I don't, watts don't right not heart that? rate target range of watts yeah yeah target range of watts and so after the first like twenty miles. My heart rate was getting a little elevated. It was it was warming up, um, and my heart rate was higher than I wanted to see at that point. And so by that point, I kind of abandoned the target watts and just decided to run by or ride by um, heart rate and then perceived effort. Um, and I knew if I, you know, with the fitness that I had, as long as I could maintain that, I think I would have been in good shape. So, um, so I I continued, you know, my my press on um to javi and was still just making progress just picking off bikes uh, i didn't get passed by one bike on the on the course so that was uh, a little feather in my cap there but i i, I had a, a friend who was racing and i know he jumped in the water um i think i think at like 632 633 i saw him jump in the water and so i already had him as a target that i wanted to to see and, and know where he was uh, he's in my age group as well. So, so we start writing up and he had made a comment the, the day prior to, he's like, if you don't catch him by Javi, you're not going to catch me. He's a bigger guy. So he's like, with that descent, my weight. And you know, uh, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get, get down. I'll see you on the run. And I was like, all right, cool deal. And, um, as we start getting closer by mile 25 for me, I see the lead, uh, the lead rider coming back down from Javi already. And so then I just start counting off, you know, counting off the bikes and, and seeing where I, where I stood. Um, and at that point, I think I saw my buddy go by 
and he was in 23rd at the time. And then after that, I just, I was like, okay, well now I just need to like focus on where I'm at. And I was about a mile, a mile from the turnaround, got to the turnaround. So I didn't catch him by the turnaround. And, um, and then just really decided to attack. Right. I was like, I'm, I can attack this descent. I know people are going to, the wind was picking up. We had gusts that were probably in, in like the 30 range. And if you are not a confident rider, that's not the time to try. Um, and so I figured even if I, even if I could, could start putting out a little bit of power to maintain, you know, even if it's, it's two, three miles an hour more than these other cyclists who are freewheeling it down this, this hill, I'm going to, I'm going to start making up some time. And, um, so yeah, just continue to, to chew through the field. And I, I was just counting people off as I, as I passed them. And sure enough, I think within three miles, like I caught my buddy. Um, so I was like, all right, well, you said it wouldn't happen, but it happened. So, <laughs> well, for um, reference, you came out of the water 20th in your age group, right? And, uh, you came off the bike with the second fastest time in your age group. So you, you chewed up that field and made up a ton, a ton of time before you even got to the run. You were, uh, you were moving. Yeah, it felt really good. I mean, again, I, um, coming out of the water was 20th in the age group. Coming off the bike, I was 20th overall. So um, right. that was a, that was a huge a, a huge uh, boost for me. Um, I knew I, I knew I was having a good bike. Um, I was still feeling feeling really good. Um, my target for the bike was a 228, and I think I came in like just over that. So again, I'm using 21 yeah. seconds. Yeah. I'm usually pretty good about where my fitness is and what I think I can, I can do. Um, and so my estimates are, again, I'm, I'm usually pretty good with that. So if, if, some, if, ever, if, if I'm ever off of that, you know, some, something's typically wrong. Um, and then coming in again, the, the, the transition wasn't as long as obviously it was from, from T1, but, uh, T2, I had a relatively good, uh, good transition. Um, got the bike, got the bike racked up, found, found my rack, no problem. Um, ran over, got my bag, sat down and, um, got, obviously I took, took my, I left my shoes on, on the, uh, on the bike. So I'm running bare well, in my socks at that point. I don't change socks again from bike to run. It's just, I feel like it's, it's not needed. Um, and I don't run barefoot. I will refuse to run barefoot. So, uh, got to my, got to my bag. And when I went to put my shoes on, that was, I felt immediate pain in my right foot. And so I knew at that point it was going to be a struggle. Um, and I, I took off for my run and it, you make it an immediate U-turn, like a tight little U-turn, uh, to the right. And again, where the cut was for me was on that outer right foot. And so as I made that turn, it was pretty, pretty painful. Um, and, and then what we start to run out and the run is the majority is on a golf course, which I can't stand these golf course, uh, course runs. I, I there, there has to be a better way. Um, you can't get into a rhythm. You're constantly yeah, turning. Yeah. You're constantly turning. It's left, right, up, down the, um, the steepness of them is, is crazy where you just drop down all of a sudden and you, you know, come up and you come to your side and it's so hilly. Um, I, I did not, I guess it's, it, people said it was better than it was, but I, I 
I despise golf course courses and especially with a cut on my foot where I can't feel like I can't move <laughs> laterally. Um, and so this is probably the worst situation for me at this point. So I, I had a target pace that I wanted to fall into. I was trying to be between like 630, 635. Um, and immediately I knew that probably wasn't going to be, um, be possible. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, we lost yeah. Tony for a second, but uh, we are back, back talking about how much we hate golf course <laughs> runs. So, yeah, so uh, coming out of T2, I, I had a target that I was trying to hit. And I thought I could be between like 630 to 635 uh, on, on the day. Um, and I decided to run those first few miles just by feel and, and not really look at my watch. And I think those first few miles ended up being more like in the 645 range, which again, given everything that I was kind of dealing with at that time, I was, I was pretty okay with, um, it's kind of a lollipop, a lollipop, uh, style course. It's a two loop where you, you run basically a half, a half loop of the golf course, and then you head out on an out and back section, and then you complete the loop. And then the second loop is just a loop of the golf course. So the first like two and a half miles, um, again, I'm just trying to settle in and figure things out. And then you, you end up, uh, you go on this out and back, which is their version of, I think the energy lab, which they call hell's kitchen. Um, it's about a five and a half mile stretch and no wind, just hot. It's like, it's like if you, you were cooking and you just literally open an oven and, and you just stood there that, that initial heat, um, that's what it was like running through that section. And, but it, that gave me a good, I, a good idea to see where I was, um, placement wise and I wasn't feeling good. And so I just started to, uh, again, look, I was trying to figure out how much, how much farther can I make it to towards the, the turnaround before I see those leaders start coming back, um, from the turnaround. And then I could, I could start to, you know, play a numbers game in my head and kind of see where I was at this point. I'm thinking I can still try and be competitive. Um, and so I saw that, that first place guy come through and then I just started counting off people until I got to the turnaround. And now by this point, I think I was in 23rd when I made the turn to come back out of hell's kitchen and I wasn't feeling great. And I, I'd already taken a glance down. I could see the, the blood soaking through the shoe. And, uh, but this was the straightest portion of the course, which was to my benefit with the, the issue I was dealing with my foot. And so I just figured, okay, we'll try and make as much progress as you can here. Cause you know, you're going to start giving time back once you get back to the golf course. And, um, I felt like I, I still, you know, moved pretty well through that section um, I think I moved up like another two or three spots by that point. Um, and then got back to the golf course and that just didn't feel great at all. Then I, the pain really started to, to get to me. Um, and I felt like I was starting to overheat a bit. Nutrition was still on point. I didn't have any problems there. Um, and then completed that, that first loop. And once you complete that, that first loop, I think you basically have like another four miles to go from there. So I, I knew like, okay, the finish line's in sight. Just try and try and stay, stay steady at whatever you can hold. Um, 
but the foot was really starting to bother me at that point. And so I knew there from the first loop, because you had already experienced it, where the most painful sections were for me on, on the foot. And so I decided when I got to those sections that I was going to walk, um, which that killed me because I do not, I do, do not like walking, um, um, <laughs> during, during races. And what was playing in my head actually was, um, I don't know if you, how many of you guys follow Goggins. Hopefully everybody does, but he, he actually had posted a video a few weeks ago where he talks about being in races and, and competition. Um, everybody's a dog. And, and don't give them scraps, right? So don't give them any scraps to, to, to fuel off of. And when you see yeah. somebody walking in front of you, that's all, that's what you need, right? That's, that's that, that's that fuel, that's that scraps. Right. And, and don't basically don't, don't give them any scraps to, to go after you. And so that was in my head as I'm walking these sections and I was so pissed at myself. Um, but it basically gave me a chance to bring my heart rate back down, uh, deal with the pain a little bit more manageably, and then try and get moving again. But inevitably, once once you start walking, it gets harder to uh, to start and then get those muscles firing again. So my pacing never really seemed to go back to where it was before. Um, and and again, like just being on a golf course that I can't stand, I, I was not happy. And and by this point, I'm just thinking like I just want to get to the finish. I'm just so over it. I didn't care about uh, placement anymore. Uh, a few people that I had passed had gone right back had gone by me. Um, and now being on the second loop, I couldn't really tell where I was anymore because of the athletes that are going by on their first loop. Um, so again, a lot of, so a lot of like confusion there and you can't keep track anymore. And then you have race brain anyway. And, you know, so I just kind of slogged through those, those final miles, which wasn't, wasn't pretty. Um, I don't really remember the finish line to be quite honest. Um, but, um, overall, I think I ended up running like a, go 137 and in in my plan i think i I wanted to run uh, like a 126 so not uh not the run i wanted um everything else i felt good about so overall i can't complain i won't complain i i'm i'm grateful and thankful uh for every finish line and i think you need to remember and really accept and appreciate the the races that don't go as planned because it it allows you to appreciate the ones that do so much more so this this was uh a good learning good learning experience for me a good learning race um again in a few different ways but overall i think i was happy and i ended up fourth in the age group and 23rd overall so um I looked at it and even if I would have ran the target that I want, even if I would have ran 126, yeah, I would have only moved up one spot. So exactly. um, it, it wasn't like, you know, having a terrible run really cost me. It cost me in the overall, which kind of bummed me out. Cause that was my, like I had, I had two goals kind of coming in here. One was to uh, podium my age group, which I accomplished. Uh, the second was to try and be top 10 overall, which I think with, with the run that I wanted um, would have happened. But again, like in reviewing the the run course now and seeing what everybody else was able to accomplish on that course, it was an extremely challenging course. Um, even with what I think was a, a, a pretty subpar run, I was still it was still the third fastest uh, run in my age group, which is crazy to even think about. Like a one thirty seven was was third, um, 
And overall, I think it was 20, like 25th or 27th, something like that. Um, so again, like it seemed like nobody could really get a groove on this course. Um, yeah, it speaks to the elements, speaks to how hard the run was just in general, right? The- most definitely. But I think like when you take elements to account, most people can deal with the elements. But if you can't, if you, if you can't just settle into a pace or you can't find a rhythm, everybody's going to struggle. And so there was, you had basically three, three distinct, um, uh, sections of this, of this run course. You had the, the golf cart path that you were running on, which is terrible for the most part. Um, and I think there was about five miles of that. As I mentioned, you have the hell's kitchen section, which is just hot and sticky and gross and it's terrible, but at least it's straight. And that's, that was about five and a half miles. But you also, they kept veering you off from the golf cart path to run on fairways. And so you had like this very soft grass that you're running on. And that accounted for about two and a half miles of the course. And so at that point, like super shoes don't help you because you're sinking in with every step. You really don't <laughs> feel like you have that that rhythm and that bounce um, and that feedback from the ground to be able to like propel you forward. It almost feels like you're running in, um, I won't call it sand. It's not that bad. But if it was like a hard pack sand, it was kind of, it, that's what it felt like. And so um, there was so much, it felt like just energy lost and inertia lost through those grassy sections um, that wasn't, that didn't really enable for a fast run on the day. So, yeah. yeah well, you could see it in, I mean, and granted, I don't put a lot of stock into the paces that are listed with the uh, mileage. Cause, uh, I find that sometimes you know, it'll show that you ran a 420 mile right in this section, but <laughs> you know, so uh, it's not necessarily true based on where all their timings are at, but I mean, overall you could see the variability in, in your run, right? You're like a 537, then a 645, then a 705, then, you know, whether this is true or not, I think there was a, like an 857 in there somewhere and then like a 547. And, and some of that I think is course variability and where the timing is and how accurate it is. But you could see that the course was, was definitely causing your pace to change. Yeah. Right. I mean, you were, it was really changing it up. Sometimes there's a hill on a course and you can see that that is, you know, pretty consistent run. Then there's a hill and you see that in the results or in the timing, but this, you could definitely see it was just kind of a constant flow. Every, uh, mile marker or every, uh, mile, uh, or marker location, you know, cause they're not all one mile apart. You could see that your pace was, was changing quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, Again, I think again, just very evident by by the course profile and 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 what what was um, what was there and available at the time. Um, but also, like again, early on, I think probably I I didn't want to look down at my foot. Right, that was that was such a big thing for me. I was like, don't even look down at it. It's gonna, you know, like it is what it is. You can't control it. You're not gonna stop. So what do you, what do you care what it looks like? Um, but then I think about like two and a half miles in. Um, once I got to that hell's kitchen stretch, I could really start to feel that squish and, and it was only my right foot. So I knew it wasn't water or sweat. It was the blood between my toes, like with every step that I was just kind of squishing through. And that's when I glanced down and saw how, how bad it was at that point. I was like, okay, that's not great. But what do you like, what, (laughs) what are you going to do? Like, we'll just deal, we'll deal with it. Once you cross the finish line, right? You have, I, I have nothing until Finland. So I was like, you'll just, just deal with it tomorrow. So, 
Yeah. So how's it doing now since the race? Um, not, not too bad. So afterwards I, I, you know, I got through and I went to medical and had, had them kind of clean it up a little bit again and, and, uh, wrap it up. Um, had a nurse who was very, very sweet and, and, um, you know, she signed my, my little bandage to make me feel better. And as of right now, it's, it's doing pretty well. I just, you know, was able to finish a, a hike with, uh, with the fiance and, uh, that was like six and a half miles, like 2000 feet of gain and got some good views today. So able to move on it. It's not, uh, it's not bleeding through right now. I think we're, we're on the mend and, um, going to you know, be able to run next week or later on this week. So you'll be at, you'll be at track on Wednesday. Oh, I'm always at track on Wednesday. Actually, no, this, right. this week I will not be cause I don't fly home until Thursday, <laughs> but next week I will be there. Cause if there's ever a chance that I'm going to try and, uh, keep up at all, at least within the same lap, as Tony, it might be when his foot is cut open and bleeding. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll be there next week. Well, cool. Uh, I well, we have a bunch of questions, and we're we're yeah. already at like an hour and fifteen, right? We said at forty-five, we'll cut over and we'll do. We're going to talk about the subject. I think we should still talk about the subject we're going to talk to. But For I think sure. all of the people that that gave us questions, we appreciate them, and I think what we can do is we'll incorporate them in next week as well. Um, we, I don't think we've one hundred percent figured out who our next guest is potentially. I know we have some ideas, but we will work some of these questions in, um, as we go. Um, but, uh, I think, I think we'll save them and then we'll, we can yeah. go to our next topic, but congratulations, Tony. I mean, for everything you faced, I mean, still an incredible time, fourth place, uh, podium finish. That was awesome. Yeah. I got the bowl. Um, I already have my Finland slot and this is a Finland race. So I obviously I just turned down that slot. I did have the option of taking an, a knee. So did it did it roll down a little bit, or was there how many slots were there for your age group for for Finland or yeah? I I didn't stick I didn't stick around for that. It this this awards um, reception was a cluster. Um, it took two and a half hours for them just to get to start the Finland slots. So I I literally only stayed to for my buddy to to see if he got a slot. Um. But yeah, no, they were they ruled pretty deep because he was 23rd in the age group. It's a reoccurring theme, is 23 number. He was 23rd in the age group, and he still got his slot. Um, and I don't know if anybody else behind him did, but um, I did get a knee slot he, and turn that down. Um, am I going to be sharing the couch with him now? No, no, no. So he, he's actually um, <laughs> he's he's actually married to Danielle Lewis, the professional triathlete, and so she's ah. already racing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he's going to be there. Uh, he's An- An- Andrew Lewis. So I'll throw your name out there, buddy. Yeah. Um, Very cool. So yeah, so All he right. was already going to be out there. So now he's just going to be out there supporting the wife. Um, and the the knee slot. There were two slots in the in the age group. Um, third took it. I said no, and then fifth took it. So, um, oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Hmm. Very cool. And as far as the well, women, congrats, women, man. thank you. The women and women for tri slots, they they were having a hard time giving away Kona slots. I will say that. Uh, they, yeah, really, that's crazy. They had so many Kona slots yeah. in Kona. Yeah, they had so many um, wow. slots, and again, the women for tri. Uh, slots had rolled out of age groups and into back into other ones and then back over to other ones. And they have their, you know, their, um, Hawaii resident specific slots, which mm-hmm. they fumbled that as well. And they were trying to correct that because they didn't give those Hawaiians, Hawaiian resident specific slots out first. And so when they were doing the age group slots, they inev- 
inevitably gave some of those slots to Hawaiian residents and then pushed mm. out other people, which then you, you can't give the Hawaiian resident slots then to right. some, right? So oh, it ended Jesus. up being a cluster. Towards the end, they just started, you know, I think the 29, 29, 25 to 29 age group, they had three slots that they couldn't give away. Um, it rolled back in, I think, to 50, wow. 54 was like the next deserving age group. And by this point, again, we're talking two and a half hours later, there's really nobody left to hand these slots to. Like people are just over it and they've already left or you've already turned them away once. So they just figure like, mm-hmm. oh, it's gone and, and they leave. So um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the roll down on the Finland and how bad most of those went um, or how long that took to finish, but I was starving and I, I ended up leaving. So <laughs> we got the bowl. I got the, I got my bowl. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, I guess we'll transition to our, our final topic and, uh, that's Ironman, uh, Hamburg and obviously what happened there. Um, you were watching the race live at that point, right, Tony? I, I was, um, again, hopped up on caffeine by that point and not being able to sleep. And, and I was kind of excited knowing that I had, you know, the three hour time difference, um, from Pacific time that I'd be able to kind of in, enjoy the race and have something to, to watch as I'm not able to sleep. Um, and was watching it live and in i was watching on youtube and on the the live chat for that stream we were all commenting on how many motos there were around these pros and at at that point i think i had counted there was 11 motos for the nine pros that were up in front and as you know they're they're in a very narrow section and going through some of those turns the riders the moto riders would slot in in between these pros um and obviously, you know, with the, within the draft zone, there's not much room between these bikes as it is. And it, we were just all commenting how it was that was looking really dangerous of, of how they were riding and, and what they were doing. And you could see some of the pro pro athletes, you know, motioning, you know, hand motions to move the bikes out of the way or telling them to move out of their way so they can make moves. Um, and I, th- I think Jan early on uh, yelled at at a, at a bike uh, or two. Um, Mm-hmm. Again, voicing that, you know, he has nowhere to move. He's basically stuck. Um, because, again, the way they're riding so close to those riders, if one of those riders wants to make a move and, and shoot to the front to then pick up the pace, they can't do that because you're, there's no room between the, the motorbikes and, and, the, uh, and the pro cyclists. Yeah. Yeah, I started the race. I was watching the swim and, um, you know, I was kind of dozing in and out, kind of just had it running on the iPad and would wake up and watch a little bit. So, um, I obviously missed the accident that happened. Mm -hmm. And then I woke up in the morning and there was, you guys were talking about it on discord and it's like, wait, what happened? Right. And I I go searching for the stream. And at that point the stream was still up. So, um, obviously for those who don't know a, one of the motos, um, one of the 11 motos tried to apparently pass uh, and get to the front of all of those motorcycles. And at that point there's bike traffic going in both directions on this narrow, uh, road. And, uh, as that bike tried to pass it head on collided with an athlete riding their bike and not on the, on the video, when you watch it back, uh, like I was telling you guys earlier, before we started, you see the bike come across the bicycle, come across the road and the, the pros dodge it, but not until I rewatched it. Do you realize that the athlete also like went between those motos somehow he made it between the motorcycles, right? He didn't hit one of those motorcycles and you know, he shot through that gap and, but you see him tumble. Um, and you could see the, the motorcycle had gone down kind of in the background. Um, 
and there's been a lot of talk about uh, how it was pretty much just ignored, right? I mean, not ignored. I mean, ignored. I mean, I don't know how you want to how you want to say it, but uh, it wasn't talked about other on the live stream um, as to what the results were or any of that. And obviously, the German feed turned that off. So um, I'll throw it out to to you guys. Just kind of thoughts on on it. Tony and I both raced Ironman World Championships last year, where uh, an impaired driver. Tried to, I think, make a U-turn on the course and turned right in front of two athletes right before I got there, actually, because um, I saw both athletes laying on the floor behind the car um, right after they hit the car. Um, and just seeing that uh, happen um, or seeing the aftermath of that, it really affected my entire day, knowing what that, um, you know, I was in a motorcycle accident before and just, you know, seeing them lay there and, and the, um, liquid from their bikes and their hydration and all of that. So, um, having to one, those pros watch that happen and keep racing. Um, but then obviously the handling of it on the live stream and, you know, I wasn't watching the comments, but you were Tony, um, kind of, you can kind of talk to what happened. Yeah. And, and if you, when you watched it live, um, you know, Welchie commented on it immediately like, whoa, we, we just had a bike accident. Um, and that was kind of the extent of it. He, he I think he, he, he thought it was just the moto accident. Just that the moto went down. I don't think he, he actually realized what had happened at that point. Um, and Jan actually swerves to, to, to miss the athlete. He rides around this athlete. And then you have, I think by that point, I think he was, he might've been in like third, third place, fourth place in, in the, in the group. Um, mm -hmm. and then, so you have what five other riders that are now riding right, right by this athlete and, and obviously saw everything go down. Um, and then I can't remember who the leader was at that point, but you see him immediately. Once you hear the impact, he gets up and looks over his shoulder and I don't think he realizes mm -hmm. what's going on, right? Like he's, they're, they're moving at a pretty good clip by that point. They're probably doing, you know, 28, 30 miles an hour, um, on that flat section. And so he, he glances up sits up and, and looks back, uh, for a bit. And then, and then immediately obviously just continues on. Cause he can't see what, what's going on. I'm pretty sure he thought maybe all the writers went down behind him with the sound that that must've made, um, from just that impact. But yeah, immediately we all, we all started trying to talk about it and try and get more information. Um, and there's a moderator on that YouTube stream that just kept deleting all the comments. Anytime anyone would try and pass along information of what was going on, that Iron Man moderator was just deleting everything um, until it got to the point to where people watching the German feed were then passing along information because they were getting more information from that side, from German television, um, than obviously we were getting anything at all from uh, from the U.S. broadcast. And so then, at that point, once the information came out that the uh, the Moto rider had passed, um, that was going on in the chat and that moderator started deleting everything and then basically started blocking people until it got to the point to where everybody was so upset basically saying shame on iron man shame on iron man that they just turned off commenting on the live stream on youtube uh and then they did the same thing on on facebook um so yeah they definitely try to silence everybody of what was going on and then it the thing with hamburg it's, it's a two-loop bike so these pros and everybody else has to ride back through that section at some point. And so we're trying to figure out what was going to happen. Um, and then it was announced that I think that they were going to cut it, cut the, cut the course short by like 10 kilometers. Uh, I think was the first information that we were getting kind of, again, secondhand information passed along 
Uh, and then we were curious to see what was going to happen as, as we got closer to the crash site. Uh, and as you got close on the US stream, you see officials basically slowing the, the pros down and having them get off their bikes. And then once they got off their bikes, the stream cuts. And then they just start basically showing aerial footage of, of Hamburg and, and different parts of the course. Um, and then it just keeps throwing it to commercials. I mean, we had, we had so many commercials. You probably had a commercial every, every minute, minute and a half, um, just to try and fill the air. And we weren't sure what, when the stream was going to come back, if we were ever going to see it anymore. And I, apparently what happened was obviously, um, you've shown the video or, or we've seen it now of, uh, on the German side showed it of all the athletes having to basically get off their bikes and do a hike a bike for a portion uh, of the upper portion of this roadway to try and get around to then continue on their race. But the, the moto bikes that the camera crew couldn't do that. So there was no more camera footage of the pro race from that point until they came into T2. Um, so that, that was, oh, that was interesting. Yeah. My buddy Jan, who is in Germany, he was actually went to the race to see, and, uh, he left me a voicemail today, um, kind of describing, you know, what happened, you know, from his perspective and, and everything that occurred. And, uh, he has a buddy that was actually doing the German broadcast. So, um, they were not made aware of anything until they heard from the police report, right. That someone had passed away. That, that information wasn't given to them by, uh, um, Ironman. So, he shared with me video of all of the athletes basically walking their bikes across the grass portion next to where the accident occurred, right? Obviously, the the rider that had passed away, um, I'm not sure if they were still there at that point. Obviously, they treated the the athlete and the camera person. They said they transported them to the hospital. But, um, you know, that, that's an accident scene at that point, right? But they, you know, I never saw anything from Iron Man showing or describing what the athletes went through as far as having to walk their bikes across the grass. Mm -hmm. uh, but now seeing this video, all the athletes, and it sounds like the pros literally were just running or walking with their bikes through the grass to the other side. Yeah. And I'm curious as to how, even with that, that race, when it first happened, cause you had, you had the lead group of nine that were obviously able to make it through and had then had the, the the other additional motives that were there with them, but I would assume after that you had the chase pack, which was I think at that point maybe three minutes back. They must have gotten stopped. Like there's there's no way for those guys to continue riding through. So like at that point, like the entire race is basically compromised, right? You you have right you have um, strong runners who typically bridge up or or you know try and minimize losses as they come into T two. Um, and then try and run down the field. My man Hansen was, was part of that group. Um, but I, it's just out of, just out of respect. I don't know why you don't just call that race. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough one for me. Um, to have again, writers or, or athletes. Um, I don't know how it would feel getting off of a bike, looking over, seeing that scene to my left as I'm hiking my bike and then having to get back on, and write again, you know? Right. I mean, just like, like I said, at world championships, right. You, you, we, you saw the accident happen, but you didn't know, I knew it was bad. Right. And immediately, you know, uh, 
that feeling in your stomach, you just, all you can do is think about what happened to them. And in this case, they completely closed the course. So, um, yeah, I, I think the only thing, yeah, that the, the only thing I can, I can even, that comes to mind relatable for me is, um, one time we were writing, doing one of our rides to Solana beach where we, we, we'd ride down to Solana beach, stop at the pizza port and we take the train back. And at, as we got ready to cross the street, the pizza port's directly across from this train station and we're, we're going to cross the street to get to the, the train station. And immediately you, you hear this impact, um, as we're in the middle of the street, cause there's, there's a crosswalk that allows you to cross it in halves. And this RV pulls by and all that's left is a cyclist in his, in a pool of his own blood. And, um, you know, we walked over and tried to, try to see if he was okay. Try to try to check a, a pulse. Um, he was, he was gone. I mean, it was immediate and that was, that was hard. Um, and you're like, what do I do for this person who's laying on the side of this road and there's nothing you really can do. But then at that point, my day's done as well, right? I just need to jump on a train and get home. I can't, I couldn't imagine seeing that and having to jump back on my bike and then try and ride with a clear mind home, you know, it, for our own safety. Um, it's just, it, it's gotta be so much. And just the images that must be imp imprinted on some of those athletes minds of what they saw, um, on that day. I, I, that's gotta be crazy. I, I, I just can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, I guess the decision for that day, I mean, th that, that's really the discussion on that day is should they have just called the race at that point? You know, it's one thing when an accident occurs and it's somewhat off to the side, right? I mean, bike accidents happen at every race. Um, obviously fatality is different. Um, but a lot of times things occur and they're off to the side, right? So they don't stop a race where in this case, I mean, you, I mean, you could not continue on the race course. Right. So at that point, the race is compromised. Like you said, um, should they have just called the race or not? I, I mean, I think the big difference with, with this particularly is that it was completely avoidable and preventable. You know, I, there's, they've been talking about it for years and, and especially of late, why are there several motos in line in front of cyclists, giving them any advantage, being this close to them, having any danger, and, and to Tony's point, what, 11 motos to nine riders, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's not, you know, maybe you have two, maybe you have one doing broadcast and one as a support vehicle, but you, you do not need to have that many, especially in a tight, narrow space like that. It's, it's, it's just insane that, that that's allowed to happen, regardless of an advantage or anything like that, but for everybody's safety, because there's only so much you can do and everybody should be looking out for each other. I mean, in Oceanside, someone went down, um, on one of the descents and, you know, we had to kind of swerve around them. Again, that's just an accident that happens. Like you're saying people, you know, die in the swim from time to time. That's not necessarily on Ironman. Everybody takes a risk when you're racing and hopefully you're looking out for each other. But when you're putting riders in danger and not to mention, I mean, the broadcast and it's completely about these pros and you're putting them in danger seems it, it doesn't leave a good taste in your mouth. It just doesn't seem that they have the athletes, you know, best intentions or, 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 or them, you know, in their minds. And the fact that 
you might have loved ones watching you or anything like that. And they're going to, Hey, good luck on the swim, you know, give you a kiss, hug, wave you goodbye and can't feel safe that you're going to be okay on the race course. That's, I don't know. I, I, and you see other races do it all the time, you know, tour de France, you can see accidents happen from time to time. They seem to do an okay job at handling that stuff with cars and hundreds of cyclists in one area together. And, and Ironman can't seem to get it together. And it's not just Ironman, it's, you know, PTO challenge, all those, all those, they, you know, that seems like the dollar's a little bit more important than safety. And I don't know, the fact that it was completely preventable is, is probably what is upsetting most people, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I guess one thing, comparing the Tour de France is a little tough because you have all the cars and vehicles that are all headed in the same direction. Um, but I think it was definitely irresponsible to have that many motos that close to the riders on that section of road. There's just so many, yeah, there's, it was completely preventable. It shouldn't have happened. Um, who knows what that rider was thinking. And now we'll, we'll never know what that rider was thinking to try and go, you know, too, too wide on the wrong side of the road into oncoming cyclists who, again, we're, we're drilled in pre-race briefings of, not crossing the center center line you cross the center line it's an, it's the instant dq if you're caught um and so that rider i'm probably thinking is he he's thinking he's safe right he, he's got nobody in front of him. He probably had just glanced up put his head back down um and was just locked into his pace uh again he was he probably must have been a, a, a front pack rider at that point you know to be that that close to the pros right. uh from from a turnaround perspective and so he's probably moving at a pretty decent clip and, um, and again, thinking he's, he's got clear road ahead and all of a sudden to, you know, maybe, maybe he did glance up, maybe he did see it coming. I, I mean, we'll probably know a little more from his perspective at some point, but, um, I, I couldn't imagine looking up and seeing a motorcycle coming straight at me and not having anywhere to go. Like you just, you can't react fast enough. Um, yeah. It's, it's terrifying enough if you, you see it on the river trail or something like that. You know what I mean? People have their head down and not paying attention. I can't imagine a moto going double that speed coming straight at you. I mean, that's a losing battle, you know? And it's, yeah, I, I think the fact of it all, the worst thing, I mean, as we record this, I haven't seen anything from Iron Man making an official statement. I mean, they've come out with nothing to say, I don't know, thoughts and prayers. No, they definitely, there was a statement. Say, Did you see the statement, Tony? Uh, yeah, there was a, a statement put out in German that was then translated, basically, you know, acknowledging it, um, condolences, okay. things like that. Um, yeah, they did call it a medical event, though. That, that I think what was, yeah. maybe maybe something was lost mm -hmm. in translation, but I don't know about calling that a medical event was the, the, right, um, the right way to word that. Oh, and also that was one of the things on the broadcast, too, um, Welchie had had mentioned that they were having technical difficulties, um, and that's why they weren't broadcasting the, the portion of the bike. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'd call that technical difficulties. Like, there's, yeah, you got to wonder. You know, that's the hard part, right? Is you have to wonder how much did did he even know, right? How much information was actually being relayed to him? Well, I, I think information was probably being relayed to him, but I think they were being told not to talk about it. That's, that's the, that's the feeling 100%. that I really get from all this is Iron Man really wanted to try and hush as much of it as possible before it went viral. Um, I mean, that's why people were, people were screen recording the, uh, the accident cause they knew Iron Man was going to pull that video at some point 
Like you just can't leave it yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, it was up, it was still up. I mean, I don't even know how many hours later that had to be like four hours later when I woke up. Cause I was able to go find it mm-hmm. right at two hours and 25 minutes uh, of the race. Um, but it wasn't much longer, maybe an hour or so later and it was gone. Uh, you know, they took it down. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, also, I mean, you see a lot of the pros and I, I don't fault them at all that, you know, they're putting up statements of, you know, how do I process this and, and how do I deal with this? It's hard. I didn't know what to do when it happened. Should I keep writing? Um, but they don't go into details of what happened or anything. And you got to wonder if, you know, they're kind of being told to keep things hush hush and that really sucks for them too. You know, it's, it's just a, it's a bad situation, but the fact that it could have been avoided or, or prevented and you, you hope that it's sad that something like this had to happen to hopefully never have it happen again. But I, I wouldn't say I have a hundred percent confidence that something like this won't happen again this year, you know, something, something severe like that. It, yeah. And I think like, well, we have a few outgoing pros who are very vocal. Um, Sebi, who was on the German broadcast, and I think he's spoken out quite a bit uh, about what's what's happened. And um, I think that's good to see. I think he was one of my favorite athletes, as it is. Um, and Jan, also on, kind of on his way out, right? This is kind of probably his, his final year. Um, I think he's got exactly. such a platform that he can really advocate for change, and I'd like to see that happen. He did make a statement, um, but I, I think I'd like to see a little bit more from him, just to be quite honest, because of his platform. Agree. Um, but if, if I think back, I mean, we were, we were talking a little bit before, but you know, Vincent Louis, um, looking into 2001 was let off course by, um, I think it was a police officer at that point, if I'm not mistaken, and wouldn't allow them to continue on, on course where they were supposed to go, turn them off. And he ends up being hit by a car and then, you know, luckily not too injured is able to ride back and has a, pr- a pretty good run. I think finished his second behind Lionel that year. Uh, the only thing I can remember maybe of this severity in the pro race would be uh, Matt Russell actually here in Kona 2017 when oh, he was on course yeah. uh, coming back on the Queen K heading back towards town. And I think it was the the turn into it to uh, Wakiloa resort. And again, it was an officer kind of leading cars through, um, through a con- it's a controlled uh, intersection and basically a, a car goes through and then there's a van directly behind that car that kind of is trying to jump through as well. And Matt can't do anything about it and ends up going into the side of this van um, and basically slices his jugular and he, he almost bleeds out, uh, right? I mean, like we, we almost lose Matt Russell at that point right on the side of, of the Queen K. And I think he's still dealing with obviously the the repercussions of, of, of that incident. Um, and also I don't think Iron Man did anything for him. I think he's still paying for his own medical bills and expenses from that situation that happened. Um, where again, as a pro, I think you should feel safe in, in your pro race. Uh, and when this is your profession and then you have the rider directly behind him was Jesse Thomas and Jesse Thomas, um, at that point is right behind Matt Russell and sees it all happen. And he swerves and, and barely, you know, is able to, to come behind the backside of that same van that Matt Russell just crashed into. 
But then that's in his mind for the rest of the race. Like, what does he do? Does he pull over? What can he do? If anything, you know, he sees Matt Russell, a fellow pro, I believe they're friends, um, on the side of the road. And then having to continue that with his in, in his mind as he's trying to finish this race. I mean, there's just, Ironman needs to do better. There's just no excuse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I mean, obviously we all, we all sign up for these things. We all take risks, right? We know, we know the risks involved. I think, um, you know, I, when I try and look at it from both perspectives, uh, these are very long races, right? And they, they are trying to close as many highways as they can or passageways. Um, I mean, even in, what was the last race? Was it Oceanside? Um, or no, which, which race was it? Was it, uh, someone was walking across the, uh, it was just recently. Was it Ben? Someone was walking. No, you're talking about Abitha. Yeah, Abitha, right? Yeah. Someone's literally like yeah. on their cell phone walking across almost right in front of them, right? I mean, Not paying attention, couldn't give a shit. And unfortunately, uh, yeah, at least that was on the run. How much? That was Alistair Brownlee. Right. Right. And he, right. Yeah, it was right. Alistair Brownlee. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's who it was. And, and he was able yeah, to like, how, like, what the hell is going on with this guy? Just like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's just today and cell phones, right? I mean, people walking into uh, light poles or, or whatnot. I mean, it, it, that's no different than just watching someone walk across the street. But yeah, I mean, how much can they obviously protecting the pros and the pro race, but from a, a just a general athlete standpoint, right? There are athletes that have been hit by multiple cars, cars cutting on course and all that. Is there something more that they can do on these large courses? I, I think when the public is, you know, I, yeah, they're making bad choices themselves. Right. And so I think a lot of this is not on Ironman, a lot of these other situations. Um, I think officials through controlled intersections need to be better about, again, because that's, that's the Vincent Lou situation, uh, someone in a controlled intersection basically sending the race in the wrong direction. Um, and that's, that's a problem. Again, with the Matt Russell situation, you have a controlled intersection where a police officer is maybe getting, you know, frustrated and trying to allow more cars through than can fit through uh these these certain gaps um i know it's hard to gauge speed which is why i think the the number one um motorcycle accident is always a t-bone because cars try and make lefts in front of motorcycles and don't can't gauge their speed fast enough and i think the same situation on these controlled intersections of cars trying to make lefts into um certain obviously closed areas as in between the gaps of these riders and there's just not enough time. So that could be prevented. Um, or they could, they just need to be better. But again, in a situation that we just saw in Hamburg absolutely yeah. is preventable. We, we've all complained about the motos yeah. being there. There's no reason for any motor to be too abreast. It, no. And I don't, th yeah, to that point, like I don't, the whole, you know, somebody walking across the course or something like that, that, that happens. And, you know, other cyclists, if they're going to be decide to draft for some odd reason and clip a wheel or people coming on the inside of a turn that you're slowing down on, but they want to speed up and then they kind of, you know, can slide into you or push you into a gutter or something like that. I mean, those sorts of things are also preventable, but that's on the athletes and not Ironman. However, they probably, I've, I've never seen a DQ or a penalty or anything like that happen for those sorts of things. So that's upsetting, but I mean, yeah, that's not on them. It's, but it's this sort of thing where it is preventable, where like Tony's saying, you know, at, at intersections, 
be very aware of how many cars you're sending through, how much space you have, you know, probably be a little more cautious going through Pendleton too. You have, I mean, the Marines tend to do a really good job of it, you know, of not letting cars go. If there's a train of bikes coming through, they don't even chance it, you know? Um, but those preventable things, I, I don't know. I, I, what do you, what do you do for that? Like DQs and things like that and be a little bit more stern or. Yeah. Cause I would just pay some extra. I, I would even say that, you know, on this course that I just raced, uh, in Hawaii, they, they actually don't close the roads for, for this one. So the queen K is absolutely wide open. And now there's, there's wider shoulders here than you experience in most places in the world or even back home. Sure. And so you have plenty of room on both sides of the queen K, uh, to ride, but in situations where, um, they also have uh, rumble strips, right? So they have those gaps, those grooves cut in, uh, and there's, there only stops maybe for a foot at a time between maybe eight foot of rumble strip and we're being told to ride on the shoulder. Well, if those riders, which I ran into, um, quite a bit was we're riding too far to the left. I don't have enough room to get between that rider and the rumble strip. Um, and even if you're yelling on your left, on your left, these people are not paying attention and I inevitably have to, um, would have to then break a rule and pass on the right or jump into the uh the vehicle lane to then make a pass right so at that point if i got hit it would essentially be my fault right because i'm yeah. i'm jumping out to where i'm really not supposed to be but it's the lesser of two evils for me at that point of you know i have right. i have nowhere to go um and and that's i, I think i did that probably on at least six occasions on saturday where i'm i'm jumping into wow what is, I, I know is moving traffic behind me. Um, but being again, a, aware of, of those vehicles and, and making sure I have clear space before I make that, that decision to move. But, um, well, well, how many marshals did you see kind of flying by you back and forth? I mean, was it common or did you see, it I saw once? three, there was, um, one, one up ahead that I had, that I, I saw just because it's an out and back turnaround. So I saw that, that, uh, moto with like a front group, um, there was one around where I was and then further down, there was, there was one towards, uh, the middle, middle of the pack type. And then I saw one support bike. So in total, I saw four, four different motos. Um, and I think that same support bike, then I saw him towards the end as well. So I'd say there were four, four motos in total for the entire race. But you didn't see anybody getting corrected or warnings or anything like that handed out, like, you know, slide no, over or something no. like that. I, I didn't see any. And, and penalty penalty tents were empty throughout the day. I didn't see anybody in any penalty tent. Um, I haven't seen any in, in four races. I haven't seen a warning. And I've seen people drafting in packs. I've seen people passing on the right, people riding in the middle or towards the left. I've, and I've never seen a warning or anything. You, and sometimes seen marshals go by and you're just looking at them like, what what is your job? Like, unless you're taking off to an emergency, like, shouldn't you be kind of ushering people to the, you know, where they should be and handing out warnings at right. the very least? Yeah. I think, I think blocking. Uh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, we're supposed to be looking out for each other as athletes and, I, I, 
Very rarely. I mean, California, it seemed like everybody was kind of working together and, and looking out for each other. But Oceanside couldn't have felt any, you know, less camaraderie and everybody was out for themselves type of thing, you know, and, and they didn't care if they were passing by you on a downhill, you know, almost scraping your handlebars or turning on the inside of a corner of you or something just to get a, a, a two second advantage, which they're going to lose anyways. It's, I, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the people, maybe it's not Iron Man in these cases, but uh, I mean, something, they, something. Has yeah. To I think, I think the blocking penalty needs to be more extreme. I think maybe you, you make it match the drafting penalty. Maybe that, that helps people um, move over. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. again, could have alleviated a lot of my dangerous situations or, or situations I put myself in uh, on Saturday um, because it's just, it's just as dangerous, I think. And, and affects, affects the race more than drafting for the most part, especially in the age group ranks. Because again, as, as Chris has mentioned, there's so many athletes that you're so tightly packed together. Anyway, a lot of times it's hard to find a, a clear path. Even if I'm being fully honest in October in Kona, the first, the first 10 miles probably at least you you almost can't ride legally you're you, you can try um but you're constantly either making a pass or trying to get somebody or or you're again you're towing people along it's just there's just too there's too many athletes um that's funny you mentioned oceanside oceanside's so competitive i can i can see that it's a different it's it's a totally different mentality at that race than it is at like an ironman california <laughs> which i think that was yeah. that was kind of marketed as more being uh beginner friendly and everybody's trying to just be very friendly towards each other and happy and let's get everybody to the finish line type type deal. 100%. but um yeah. yeah i think i think there's just too many athletes in these races i it, the one i just did here we had i think 1600 registered only a thousand finishers so I think that's a good number, right? They were able to be very mindful of, of how many they're putting in the water at a time. So you're not, you're not basically banging into people. Um, you can find, find clear water if you wanted to. Um, and that also helps spread out the bike by, by the time those people are getting on the bike, there's more room, there's more gaps. It's safer overall. And I think it just provides a better experience. And so I think these, yeah, some of these races just need to be capped better or be very mindful of how many athletes they're allowing on certain courses. So limit, you know, if there's, if there's a, a course that you're going to provide that has very narrow roads, you, you put a, a smaller limit of total athletes. You can, you can race on that event. It's just, it just needs to be the way it is. And it can't always be about chasing the dollars. Maybe, you know, one event you break even at because you're going to make money at the next one. Um, and maybe you lose a little money on one, but you make it back plus then, you know, plus some on the other, it can't be, you know, every, every race, Oh, this, this is a money loser. It's not, it, it, or I just break even. And so we kill the event because you're just, now you're, now you're killing, uh, yeah, now exactly. you're killing the growth of the sport. Yeah. Killing Waco and all those, all those races. Cause they're, they're not selling too out small, quote right? unquote, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it seems like those are great venues and great places to do it, that they're not super packed, you know, and Oceanside's a good one because they got Pendleton that they can kind of really control, you know, it's not, you know, not a ton of people on the roads and, and they have access to it. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't, again, I think, I think there's probably some, uh, some greed at the bottom of all of this, but. Well, it's, it's definitely a, regardless of whether you have a thousand or you have 2000 athletes, right. You're paying all those people to run that course. So mm -hmm. the more you can get through that course, the more money you're going to make. 
right? Because you've yeah. staffed the whole course. You're playing for all of the emergency services yeah. at that point. You're, it is a, it is a numbers game at that point. How many people can we get through there? Um, in the case of yeah. something like Oceanside, it's one of the most expensive, maybe the most expensive yeah. half there is, um, regardless of however many people they have racing that race. So, um, yeah. And the more athletes you have, the more opportunities they have to buy merch. 100%. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing with them kind of rolling back the standard for the AWA stuff, right? I mean, you don't even have to be, you know, a, a top quote unquote athlete. You just have to race a certain number of times. You throw money and they'll give you an award type of thing, you know? So the all wealthy athlete program, that's what we call it, right? That's right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Give me your money. I'll give you an award. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, we love Ironman racing. <laughs> hey, I'm still racing. I'm still, yeah, I ain't going to stop. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Well, this is. Now there's, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of good that comes from it, but it's, a, I, you know, it's just upsetting. But yeah, 100%. I, guess, uh, I mean, you hope everybody wants it to get better, right? Uh, that's the whole totally. the goal, hopefully. And hopefully Ironman it feels yeah. the exact same way. And they're, they're seeing yeah. the external pressure and, and the, yeah. you know. There will be some adjustments made, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. Well, thanks, guys. This is a record. An hour. We're almost going on two hours, hour and 55 minutes. This is, if anybody is left listening, we appreciate <laughs> it. We appreciate you sticking around this entire time. <laughs> well, they're going to be upset if they didn't stick around for the hot takes and, you know, some, some passion. Exactly. Exactly. So. Well, good deal, guys. So you're back when, Tony? You come back Wednesday, two more days in paradise? I fly back Thursday morning. So, yeah, Thursday morning, a couple more days, a few more days in paradise. Well, cool. Well, we will be back here next Monday doing this again. So, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, Tony, for taking taking some time out, of course, from your your recovery and vacation to give us the download. Congratulations, man! So it's a great. Thanks, result. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, I will include all of the uh, places you can find us. We don't have to rattle them off this time, but uh, <laughs> uh, we will uh, talk to you guys next week. Awesome. Sounds good.